In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Thanks, Dave. Thanks to the musicians. Thank you, Peter, for reading so clearly and helpfully. And uh, I'd love it if you have that on your lap, as always, as I begin by telling you about my little family. My little family. I was born into a little family. I say little a couple of times because mum and dad were, and uh, still are, only children. 
Uh, there was my brother and I, so that makes four. That means Christmas is cheap. Um, but that means when it comes to understanding relationships with other members of the family, I really don't have a clue because I never had an auntie, never had an uncle. Cousins, what are they? When it comes to understanding family and relationships, I am absolutely clueless because my family was so small. I had to check if I had any aunties or uncles or cousins with Joe this morning just to make sure. I don't know who they are or what they are. They're a foreign concept to me. John, uh, rather, as John comes to baptise Jesus in Matthew 3, 13 to 17, this little passage is of huge importance that it's in every one of the four Gospels. It's interesting to me that Matthew and Luke, they record the birth of Jesus. Mark and John, they don't. But Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all record the baptism of Jesus that we have in Matthew's Gospel, verses 13 to 17. But what has struck me this week is the relationship, not between me and aunties and uncles and cousins and nephews and all that sort of stuff. What has interested me is the relationship between Matthew 3, 13 to 17, the baptism of Jesus, and what happens next. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. They've got no relationship, right? Wrong. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, and this little word that says then. That should be in bold, underlined, underscored, because this is really what you notice. Let me read to you a few things that have struck me this week. In chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, there's the, the Spirit's baptism. Then, chapter 4, verse 1, there's a spiritual battle. Two events that are intimately linked. There's the voice from heaven, chapter 3, verse 17. Then, chapter 4, verse 3, there's a voice from hell. There's a voice from heaven that speaks once, chapter 3, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 3, and what follows, there's the voice from hell that keeps on speaking. These two passages are not to be seen as A and B. They're intimately and intricately and carefully linked and placed side by side by Matthew. Why? That's what I scratched my head on on Tuesday. I think there's a lesson we need to learn just from how these passages are side by side. You've got comfort and assurance and joy, this wonderful word and proclamation at the end of chapter 3. Then you've got suffering and trial at the beginning of chapter 4. You've uh, got this deep irony of water. That's the end of chapter 3. Then, before you know it, you're in the desert, dryness. That's kind of ironic to me. Because if you're here exploring Christianity, you're kicking the tires of church, you're wondering, what is this all about? If anyone tries to sell you a Christianity that is full of joy and happiness, it's exalted, you can soar to the heavens and you'll never come down, there's no bumps, there's no tears, there's no suffering, that is not authentic Christianity. Matthew puts these side by side. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, has this phenomenal, this unique spiritual experience. Hearing his Father's voice from the heavens, he's baptised, he sees the Spirit of God descending upon him, and others see it as well. It's for their benefit. And yet then, not by accident, chapter 4, verse 1, not just then, God, the Spirit of God, leads him into battle as he goes into the wilderness to fight against this foe that we meet. If ever you hear of a Christianity that is joy and no tears, if it's, not to, if it's too good to be true, it is, because it's not true. And Matthew, just subtly, I think, is showing us here 
with this superb, unique experience that Jesus experiences at the end of chapter 3. And then as God drives his son into the wilderness, where he stands as a representative of a new people, echoing Israel of old, 40 years, read 40 days and 40 nights. You can hear Adam and Eve in the garden, and now you see the Son of God doing battle with Satan in the wilderness. If ever you think that there should be a Christianity without tears, that's not authentic Christianity. Subtle lesson, just from how Matthew has placed these stories side by side, I think. And of course, because it's a sermon, we learn three things. That is, if you're going to have a, a battle, that's the Christian life. You, the Christian life is a, is a battle. If you're going to have a battle, you need to know who your enemy is. If you need to know who your enemy is, you need to know where the front line is so you can fight. And if you know who your enemy is and where the front line is so you can fight, you need weapons. That's where we're heading. Let's get into it. Who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? Matthew shows us the enemy, according to the whole Bible and from the Gospel of Matthew, is Satan. It's the devil. The devil is not a pantomime foe with an inflatable fork. He's not the guy with red horns. It's far more subtle. But Matthew in the Bible as a whole describes the reality of two kingdoms, not one, two kingdoms. The reality of opposing forces, good and evil, but not Star Wars. This is the force of good, which is God, and the force of evil, who is his foe, with very limited power, but is real and noticeable in the pages of the Bible, and that is Satan. Two opposing forces. They are not arm wrestling to see who's strongest. There is the almighty God and then there's the devil. But the foe is real. The Bible says something at this point that a lot of people don't believe today. And I just want to spend a bit of time thinking about this. Behind our complex human nature, behind what we read on the internet and on the printed uh, ink page, there is the reality in our world of evil, of forces of evil intelligence and the bible is unashamed about this the bible says there is a devil and there is the reality of a demonic activity there's demonic forces and if you're thinking this is absolutely nuts this is the last time i come here this is ludicrous just bear with me for a few moments if you're thinking we're educated people this is okay this is written in a primitive society this is the first century with the 21st century Surely this doesn't happen anymore. No one in their right mind thinks about this. You must be a bunch of loonies. Well, let me introduce you to a man who I found about 15 years ago. His name is uh, Andrew Del Bonco, a, a ref- unfortunate name for someone who's written on this topic. But <laughs> Andrew Del Bonco is a, he's not a Christian man. He's someone who's thoughtful. He's someone who teaches in the University of Columbia. And this is how he describes himself. I'm a secular person. I'm a liberal Uh, And I do not believe in religion, okay? So he's not a Christian man by a long shot. But in 1995, he wrote this interesting book called The Death of Satan. The Death of Satan. And he's musing, he's thinking on this issue of good and evil in the world. But he's not a Christian, but he looks at the empirical evidence in the world. He looks in his own heart and he studies and he writes a very thoughtful book. This is what he says. He says, we have a huge problem in modern society. We have a huge problem in modern society. We have a problem with the whole idea of the existence of someone called the devil or someone called Satan. He uses the name synonymously as the Bible does. He says, if you say the devil is all of the problem, if you say the reason that things go wrong is because the devil made me do it, that's why I murdered my rabbit, because the devil made me do it and I was getting irritated with the rabbit, 
something like that. If you get rid of evil and says, the devil made me do it, then it's not my fault. You, you kind of eradicate quickly the reality of a spiritual force called the devil, the evil one. You can minimalize it, you can do away with it. He said, if you get rid of the idea of Satan and the, the idea of a transcendent supernatural evil, as well as the personal side, how do you explain the atrocities in the world? If there is no evil one, if the Bible is wrong, if Jesus spoke authoritatively about many things, but on the devil he was wrong, if you take that position, how do you explain the atrocities in the world? How do you uh, articulate the two towers? Where do you go for words like that? Because if you can't use the words to say that was bad, it's more than bad. People flew uh, airplanes deliberately into towers to kill as many people as they could. That's more than bad, it's more than a mistake, it's more than wrong. What words do we use? And Del Bonco is uh, writing this book to say, how do you live in a world like that? And he's a secular person, he's a liberal person, and he's someone who doesn't believe in religion. Very interesting book. Matthew says, no, you may find it hard to believe. You may not see uh, devils popping up on every corner. You may think that they're only consigned to the pantomime guys. But Matthew and the whole Bible says there is a reality of evil in our world. And if you say that Christianity is wrong, Jesus is wrong on this area, but he's right on everything else, that's one problem. But actually, look, Matthew says, as soon as God speaks from heaven, his son is driven into the wilderness and he does battle with a capable, real foe. And the Bible is unapologetic to say his name is the devil. I mean, look, the, uh, the devil is not like the horned lizard of Arizona. The horned lizard of Arizona is one of my favorite animals of the week. And uh, he does one of two things. When he comes against a foe, either he inflates himself, not with a pneumatic tire kind of at Sainsbury's for 50p. He inflates himself, he puffs himself up so he looks bigger than he is. Sometimes the devil does his best to do that. He has very limited power. Sometimes he overreaches. Sometimes he inflates himself so he looks uh, big and scary. That's one option that the devil does in the history of the world and in the Bible as well. But uh, if the horned lizard of Arizona is not puffing himself up, the other thing he can do is this. And sometimes it's even more dangerous. And perhaps this is what the devil is doing in our culture at the minute. He acts dead. He just freezes. He acts immovably just like the horned lizard of Arizona. Those are the only two things the devil can do, like the lizard. He can puff himself up, and he can look important. He can decreate, he can't create, he's not that powerful. Or he can be absolutely still, and it looks like he doesn't exist at all. And those are two equally dangerous positions the devil can take. Christian friends, what can we learn from this? Just from the way these two passages are side by side before we look at them closely. I think there's a principle here. Isn't it true when you make a resolution to say, I'm going to serve God more, you come back of a camp, you have a retreat, you have a deep uh, time of resolving to, to put a new discipline, new spiritual discipline and habit into your life. As soon as you do that, by Wednesday, you're doing something worse than you've ever done before. Isn't that true? You experience that? By Wednesday, something is wrong. You've done something worse than you've done for years. There's always a counterattack to a spiritual high. And that's what Matthew is subtly teaching us by putting the baptism of Jesus next to the temptation. That's the enemy we face as Christians, the real enemy that's in the world. 
by now having laid a foundation, let's look more closely at the Bible. Where's the front line? If we're in this battle, if we're in this fight, where's the front line? And then what are our weapons? Look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 carefully now. There was nothing that Satan did that was extraordinary. Do you notice that? There's no uh, kind of neon lights in the sky. There's no uh, kind of floating. What he does is simply and profoundly to contradict every single thing that was said at the baptism of Jesus. Look at the three things he did. Look at uh, verse 3 of chapter 4. Turn these stones into bread. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. Throw yourself down in public off the top of the temple and kind of just float there. Look at verse 9. Worship me and I will give you, says Satan to Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth. What's he saying? Let's go back to the baptism. When Jesus journeys 75 miles or so from Nazareth to uh, Galilee, when John is saying, you should be baptizing me, not I baptize you, there's this profound kind of standoff that's happening. Everybody knows that uh, baptism is a sign of repentance. It's a, a sign of turning around. It's a sign of leaving your old ways behind because I'm sinful, but God has rescued me and I want to live for him in the future. Cleansing away sin. That's the symbolic nature of baptism. But in verse 14 of chapter 3, there's a standoff. Why am I baptizing you? You should be baptizing me, says John the Baptist to Jesus. It should be the other way around. And then Jesus says in chapter 3, verse 15, this is not an anomaly. This is proper for you to baptise me to fulfil all righteousness. Here we are at the baptism before the temptation. And Jesus is saying, I'm here as a substitute. My main mission in my life is not to get baptised to be like you, I've come to die in your place. I've come to live in your place. I am a substitute. I'm not just an example. And when I live in your place, and when I die a sufficient death in your place, then you can live in my place. It's gospel little undertone, just in chapter 3. That's what I've come to do. And so after this explanation, verse 14, verse 15 of chapter 3, John baptises Jesus. Verse 16, this unique event, the Spirit of God descends visibly. And then verse 17 of chapter 3, the Father speaks an authoritative word, a proclamation. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And to Jewish ears, you've got it on the screen there. What God is doing from the throne room of heaven is proclaiming before Jesus has done anything, this is my long-awaited king. He's taking a few words from Psalm 2, which is a messianic, a kingly, prophetic psalm that says a king will come, the nations will uh, rage, and they will kind of clench their tiny little fist against his authority and power. But he will come, and he has come. And God the Father is saying, this is my son, the king has come. And he's also taking a few words from the uh, words of Isaiah, 700, 800 years before the life of Jesus. And he says, with whom I am well pleased. Why is the Father pleased? Because he was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sins. And God the Father is cut and pasting these two uh, kingly and uh, prophetic prophecies from the Old Testament and saying this is my son that's my boy and I delight in him 
And the Jewish people at the time are saying, hang on, Psalm 2, that's about a king. Isaiah, that's about a suffering servant. Those two don't, those two don't go together. And God the Father says, yes, they do. And here's the man in whom the king has come in triumph and he will receive the judgment from my hand as well. God the Father says, yes, it is. It's the king. His name is Jesus. It's the suffering servant. And his name is Jesus too. He will enjoy and know victory. But it will come and look like a defeat. He will triumph on the cross as he receives my judgment. And so when the devil comes and says in chapter 4, I want you to turn these stones into bread. It's an absolute affront, front and centre to the gospel at the beginning of the ministry of King Jesus because he's saying there is another way. I don't want you to be a substitute for the people. I want you just to be an example for them to follow. Why don't you use your Holy Spirit power to make these stones into bread? Why don't you do that? There is a way of life, Jesus, where you will not have to depend upon your Father for everything. Show your power. Float in midair. Don't fall down. Make a demonstration of your power and people will follow you now at the start of your ministry. And there's a way to live that is not through the cross. There's a way to live that will not be the pathway to suffering. There's a way to victory where you will not have to be alienated from your Father. Show your power. Look like Superman. And you'll get following here and now. And Jesus says no. I will not do that. Jesus is not like every other religious leader. He's not an example to follow. He's a saviour, he's a rescuer. And he answers and faces off Satan, not with a demonstration of his power, but with words from the Bible. Did you notice that? He quotes from Deuteronomy, chapter 6 to 8, and he says, my Father's word is sufficient for me. I know what it is ahead. I know it will not just be difficult. I know it's going to be so painful. I'm going to experience alienation. I'm going to experience suffering. I'm going to experience rejection. But my Father is enough for me. And his promises are sufficient for me. Satan is hurling himself with all his limited power at the start of the ministry of Jesus. As he's echoing... The people of Israel in the Old Testament is echoing Adam and Eve from the first chapters of the Bible. And he comes and says, if you are the Son of God. See how Satan twists the words of God. Verse 17 of chapter 3, God says from heaven, this is my Son. And what are the first things from Satan's lips? Chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 6. If you are the Son of God. See, he's twisting the words from heaven, because the words from hell are trying to tempt Jesus to go another way. Friends, here's the full frontal attack with limited power. And if this is how Satan tempts Jesus, this is the full frontal attack on the gospel, right at the beginning, on God's plan to rescue a people for himself. Here's the question we must ask ourselves if we're Christians. How will Satan come against you? Where's the front line of attack for you? There are really two things that uh, Satan can do. Satan will either come at you and he's going to keep you from seeing, if you're not yet a Christian, he will keep you from seeing that you can be a son of God. 
That's what he'd love to do. He'd love to obfuscate. He'd love to cloud meaning. He'd love to put things in your path or your way. Some smokescreen. Because Satan wants you to see other people can become Christians, but not you because of what you've done in your past. That's what Satan loves to do. You're too far gone. You've made too many mistakes. You can never be a child of God. Satan loves to get people to think like that. Or, if you are a Christian, he loves you to think like this. He loves you to try and make you forget that you are a Christian. He loves to tempt you so that you might fall. He loves to tempt you so that you won't succeed. How could you be a son of God, a daughter of God, and behave like that this week? How can you turn up? How can you pray? How can... and so on. Those are the two things that Satan loves to do. He'll either try and keep you, cover your eyes, make the pathway to Christ hard and difficult. Or if you're already a Christian, he'd love for you to doubt your salvation, to doubt that God is good, to doubt his provision for you. And that's what he's doing, perhaps in some of our lives this morning. He wants to get in the way. And that's the front line that we face, because we're in a battle. And as Dave says to the kids, we're equipped, not with oranges, but with the word of God, with the promises of God that are enough. That's the main thing that Satan does. It's the front line of the battle that we face. And if we're in this battle, then what are the weapons? To finish up, here are the weapons. Jesus gets two at the end of chapter three. He got them at the baptism. He received the word of God. Verse 17, you are my beloved son. This pronouncement, I am well pleased with you. Tom and Jerry, that's my boy. This authoritative voice from heaven saying, I love my son and I want the whole world to know it. And it's not just love, it's approval. And these echoes from the Old Testament, this, this divine pronouncement that here is the one that you've been waiting for, the suffering servant and the king. And then verse 16, he also receives the spirit of God. Notice how Jesus responds to Satan. Verse 4 of chapter 4, verse 6 of chapter 4, verse 10 of chapter 4. What does he do these three times as a refrain? It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus dealt all the, the time with the same sufficient resource as Satan came to tempt him. He took him back to the promises of the Bible. Satan knows the Bible. Do you notice that? He used it too. But Jesus says, all the temptations that you can throw at me, all the problems that you're going to align against me can be dealt with by the word of my Father. It's enough for me. He's enough for me. He's just pronounced a word of delight over me. And you will not tempt me to divert from pleasing my Father what you say will not satisfy my heart. It looks so good to taste and touch a way of glory without the cross. What a temptation for King Jesus. But he said no. And he reminded himself and Satan of the sufficiency of the Bible and the goodness of his father. But how about you and me? I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard and insufficient for me just to say no to temptation. It doesn't work. So often I fall. 
We need to know where the front line is. And for that, we need to know the Bible. Do you have a habit of trying to learn and enjoy the sufficient word of God, the Bible? Do you have a plan to read it and digest it in big chunks, in small chunks, in any size chunks that you can? Do you have a habit and a desire to take the sufficient word of God, the Bible, and internalize it in your person so you can say something like the psalmist, this is like honey to me, I delight in it, I enjoy it, it's precious to me, it's valuable to me, or does the Bible gather dust week to week? How can you stand? unless you have the weapons ready. You can't do it. For Christmas, we brought our son, our eldest son, a whittling knife. We thought it was safer than a Swiss army knife. We've been proved wrong after a day when there's blood coming out of his hand because the anti-cut gloves were left in the packet, which is not where they should have been. But it struck me after three days, I couldn't abide it. The whittling knife, was getting rusty already. It's got a bit of wood juice on there, a bit of sap, and it's starting to go rusty. So I got out, um, having rebuked him lovingly, I got it out, I got the, the sharpening stone out, and I started to work on it, and I took off the rust, and then I oiled it up and said, don't ever do that again, because it offended me, because it's a tool. If it's something else, that's fine. But the tools are important to me. Friends, in your hand, on your hip, electronically, in paper form, is the word of God. Is it sharp? Is it looked after? Is it dusty? Is it rusty? How can you stand against the evil one who tempts you if there is dust all over your Bible, so to speak, if there is rust all over your knife or sword? It's not a rear guard action. You can't just say no. You've got to steep yourself in the promises of the Bible. You've got to enjoy the character of God so that when you are tempted, you can stand by seeing this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's the word of God. It's the substitution of Jesus Christ in your place for your sake. You've got to take the word. You've got to take the gospel. And you've got to say, get away from me because it's written. You've got to know the Bible to do that or you'll fall. And deep down there, Satan comes along and he whispers in my ear and he says, it's not just that you just don't know the Bible. What you struggle is you know in your heart of hearts that actually you're not pleasing. You're not good enough. The things you've done, the mistakes you've made. And yet here is Jesus who says, I have fulfilled all righteousness. And by faith, that can be ours as well. We can have a fresh start. That's what you've got to take down from the page of the Bible into your heart. Because that's the front line. Here's the second weapon. It's the Spirit of God. There is a, a film that came out many years ago, Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, uh, tell the story of the elephant man. The elephant man was, uh, had this awful disformity on his face. He was so disfigured that his parents disowned him when he was very young. They didn't want to know him. Um, and he uh, becomes part of a freak show where people go and enjoy laughing at him and staring at him. People treat him as an animal. And there's a very poignant place right at the end of the film where some uh, kind, educated people uh, take the elephant man into their social group and they invite him around for tea and they teach him some etiquette, they teach him how to speak, they try and treat him as a human being. They don't just look at him, they enjoy his person and his character. And uh, he's, sit there, he's sitting there having a cup of tea around the table and they're talking to him about his past and about uh, his family life and he begins to share how his parents never loved him and how his parents gave him up. And he says, 
You know, if only my mother could see me with such wonderful friends as you, maybe she'd love me. I was such a disappointment to her. Very poignant words, the elephant man utters, longing for the affections of his mother. Deep down I know that I will never be good enough for God. Deep down some of you may have experienced the alienation of an elephant man. Parents that never loved you as you deserved, never loved you as you longed for. And what you do not need is just for a parental word to say, if my mum could see me with my friends now, like the elephant man says, what you need to hear is the voice from heaven that says this, you are my beloved son because of nothing you've done, because of Jesus. With you, I am well pleased because of him. If the spirit of God came upon the elephant man, so to speak, if those words went into his heart and his conscience, into his very person, he would be healed relationally and even more important than physically, he would be restored spiritually. It's my conviction that what we need to hear the most is verse 17 again. This is the gospel. This is my son whom I love. This is my daughter whom I love. And with you I am well pleased because of Jesus. Until you grasp that, until it begins to trickle down into your heart, the gospel is not just a some data that we need to accrue, it's experiential as well. Until you've got the principles of the gospel deep down, you'll never be able to say no to the evil one. But as you do, as you guard yourself with the, the word, the sword, and the spirit of God as well, then you'll remember that Jesus is the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. He's gone before us. As it says in Hebrews, then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Remember him. Remember Jesus who went into battle and unlike Adam, unlike Israel, Jesus won. And we stand on his shoulders. Let's pray.